This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Okay, well welcome those of you here and those of you who are there. <coughs> I'm speaking of a a topic that I've struggled with for a long, long time and uh, had a terrible time getting in what I wanted to get in and I didn't succeed fully, but that might mean another lecture some fine day. Anyway, it's where did human rights come from? I've just been really confused by human rights. What are they? What sense should we make of them? Who is making noises about about human rights and making sense and who isn't? Um, I'll just start with World War II, uh, because really there's not been that much discussion historically of human rights as a phrase, as a term, as something we saw as a thing. And when the horrors of the Holocaust became known after the war, there was a movement to have an extended conference with representatives from all the nations of the world, so it was a, 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 a real project, to write what came to be known as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. <clears throat> um, it was, again, it was thought that a worldwide protest and prohibition of Hitler's genocide, but not only that, but the annihilation of all sorts of... Um, people with mental and physical limitations, along with the Jewish race in the Holocaust, the protest against that would be a milestone that here the world has taken a stand against this uh, and a disincentive for it happening again. They were hoping they might be able to get a legal uh, sort of laws coming from this, but they weren't um, because all sorts of nations, including the U.S. of A., was nervous about having... um, some external uh, international court. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt was the recent widow of Franklin Roosevelt, was very instrumental in it. She was a Christian of some very passionate persuasion. I'm not sure where her theology was, but uh, she was one of the main leaders behind it and to keep it sustained over all sorts of difficulties. A number of Christians took part, the French theologian, uh, Jacques Maritain and, and, and Lebanese Christian called Charles Malik uh, did a lot of work on it, but it included because it had people from every country it included people um, from every religion virtually and uh, and no religion no religions so uh, it was a huge mix <clears throat> they had a lot of uh, trouble getting together to, to just to meet, to make sure they understood each other, but they've kept at it. And it began with the, the statement finally began with the, with the preamble in it. 
the inherent, inherent dignity and equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. <coughs> and <coughs> it was finally accepted by the General Assembly of the UN in uh, December of 1948. They had set out to answer two questions. One, what are human rights? And two, why are human rights? Why should there be human rights? So what and why? After the preamble, they came up with 30 articles or 30 rights, which are somewhat predictable, but then some that are surprising. Uh, To answer the question, what? Uh, But because of the, as I said, because of the differences between them all and the impossibility of getting uh, a single statement given the various different worldviews represented, um, they came up with nothing on the why question, which was uh, is an interesting problem, but but not not uh, surprising. Uh, after this came out, there are many more declarations of people focusing on economics, different parts of the world, and so on, and discussions. And I think human rights has been on the table ever since, in a way, as a thing, in a way that it wasn't before. A um, few days go by, as I listen to the radio news at least, and a little bit the television news every once in a while, that I don't hear someone has broken human rights, or is a human rights violation here or a human rights violation there, uh, and it, may, it makes our news. Needless to say, there has not been that much compliance to these rules since then. It's not as if this statement has... has a, uh, change the behavior of the world population, political uh, behavior. Uh, and that shouldn't surprise us, given human nature and given who it was, who was included. Um, Stalin's Russia was represented. Uh, probably this well, certainly was before Mao took over in China. So, so it would not have been Chinese communism, but, but certainly Russian communism. Uh, a difference that's there right away that you should see because of the complexity of the idea of human rights is that the, the Marxists would say that you and the West are concerned entirely about individual rights. We, on the other hand, are concerned about collective rights, communitarian rights. Uh, you need to sacrifice individual rights quite often for the good of the community. And so our view is higher anyway. Uh, we don't stand with you on the, all the stuff about individual rights, but we stand on a higher standard. Um, so just that was some of the, those are some of the problems they were dealing with at, at, at the very um, uh, um, immediate level. Um, that's the example of what you hear almost immediately every time the U.S. challenges China about human rights violations, what they're doing with the Uyghurs or what they're doing mm-hmm. with wherever. Almost always back, if China makes any response at all, it's almost, hey, you have a different whole paradigm for what governance is about. We protect the community. We make decisions for the community's sake. That's what they're deciding about Hong Kong now. That's what they're deciding about the Uyghurs. Uyghurs, it's, Uyghurs rather. It's, it's a, uh, a decision made for the good of the community as a whole. Uh, since then, the whole scene of human rights has been uh, reached, I think, a real level of confusion. It's almost, if it was in economics, it would be a growth industry in, in, in terms of the... the popularity of getting a hold of the term 
and, and chasing it around. There's still the very serious view that Eleanor Roosevelt was trying to propagate, which is to get us to think seriously of what uh, of, of major decisions in law and public policy, uh, <clears throat> the use of power and the shaping of laws. There's a huge literature in, in uh, philosophy and law about human rights, I, much of which dawned on me as I started working on this. Uh, it's amazing how much has been published, uh, in philosophy particularly, uh, about human rights. What do they mean? Uh, what, what use are they? Um, how should they be shaped? Uh, when you look at <clears throat> all the different declarations, the certain cynicism uh, uh, about them, which would say, uh, okay, but declarations are not deeds. And that's something, that's a little phrase that comes up quite a lot, which is, of course, perfectly true because words can be cheap. Especially, especially when deeds are very expensive. Um, there's also those who say that human rights talk does more harm than good because it just has just been inflated and degenerated into what is they call possessive individualism, of people just grabbing for their space for themselves and using human rights to articulate their own their, their difficulties, or else uh, just entitlements about anything that happens to be a grievance to me. Um, others tied more to identity politics, and we're, we're calling critical theory now, have tried to set up uh, what someone like Douglas Murray, who's done some very interesting stuff on this, would call a maze of tripwires across our countries. Uh, tripwires so that almost no one can walk and talk normally without triggering somebody's tripwire and offending them and them claiming that they have made a, vi- a human rights violation. Uh, and I have some sympathy with, with that um, criticism. And he says tripwires are increasing. And um, as, as uh, a French philosopher that I've lectured on here before, Chantal Del Sol, it's a fascinating person, but she would say that the multiplication of rights is a sign of the decay of the society. Uh, because it's what you, you add to rights and you think that the growth, you have a growth in moral stature when you're adding rights. In fact, uh, I think what she's complaining about is what's here called possessive individualism. So, I found the, the whole topic a troubling one at a number of levels, and that's why I was interested in doing something on it. Um, and all of these, all of these are good reasons why to think about human rights and to reflect on them. Uh, so to start here, what kind of thing is a human right? Uh, here I'm leaning on the philosopher at the end of it. Uh, the talk will be um, starting with that, dealing with the middle chunk will be more historical, dealing with uh, intellectual history and, and church history, and then I'll end with a section on more what is a Christian uh, response to it. So I'm jumping around with different sort of modes here. What is a right, a right itself? A right, uh, for me, is something that is a good for me, they call it a life good, which is due to me. Okay? It's owed me. It's my right. If there's something that's a benefit for me, is, is, is a due to me. I have a right to be treated in a certain way and not treated in another way. 
If I'm not treated in that good way, which is due to me, I have been wronged. Injustice has been done to me, and somebody is guilty. You have a legitimate claim on something that it, which is due to you. A possession, it could be a possession, it could be a freedom, it could be an event, it could be a response, it could be the zillions of kinds of rights that philosophers have tabulated in trying to get to grip with this. Um, permission rights, response rights, all, all, all over the map, uh, which is actually quite helpful to sort of get things so that we know what we're dealing with, because the, the, the term can go everywhere. Uh, <clears throat> it is owed to you, if it is owed to you, and justice uh, is to give each person what is his or her due. Something can be, of course, good for me, but it may not necessarily be my due, my right. I love Cezanne. It would be very good for me to have a Cezanne in our living room. Uh, that doesn't, alas, give me the right to go to the MFA and come home with a Cezanne. You get the picture. Uh, also, another way to get at this, my my mother, when she was seriously ill, gave me a legal right called the power of attorney, which was to sign legal papers for her and write checks on her account for her. That was a personal right, uh, but it was not a universal right. It didn't apply to anybody else. It was very time-specific uh, and person-specific um, but was still a right. Another side of rights, which is very, very important, which is that if anything uh, is a right for me, it could be a duty, an obligation, or or a responsibility for you. Just to warn you here. Uh, It will be a duty for someone if it's a right for me. That's tied to the meaning of right. That by definition means that it's an obligation or duty for someone else, or it could be a group or an institution, even the government, uh, to, to meet that due, to meet that right. Justice requires that somebody meets that right, if it's a really right. With the right of a power of attorney for my mother, the banks and various lawyers had the duty, had the obligation to respect my signature. Just to put that in the, in the picture. You can't talk about rights without talking about obligations. Philosophers say rights are correlative with duties. Not sure I'd ever heard the word correlative before, but there it is. It's a right, rightly and necessarily connected to uh, connecting rights and duties. A claim to rights can start from either end, the right end or the duty end. <clears throat> in fact, in the Bible, rights questions are very often raised from the duty end, not the obligation end. God in the sixth commandment tells me I have a right to not be murdered. But that's not the way it's worded. It puts it puts it the other way around. The duty is on you not to murder me. Because it says, you shall not murder. Rights and obligations are inseparable, is the, is the, is the point here. Uh, but it's interesting to, to, to realize that when you get one, uh, you have the other somewhere. 
Okay, that's what rights are. Why are there human rights? What is it about us that we are justified, warranted, to claim human rights? That each of us as a human being has rights to certain things. Especially a right for all human beings. I have some good tools. Shovels, rakes, axes, chainsaws. But they don't have rights. But it makes people distinct. What, What makes people distinct from everything else on earth? Most of those people who talk about animals' rights will still say that human rights are distinct from that, unique, and far and much more far-reaching. So to believe in animal rights doesn't mean you don't believe in humans' rights. Obviously, well, it, it may, actually, but it doesn't necessarily. <clears throat> Why should there be rights for all humans? There must, be, there must be some value in us, or dignity in us, or worth to us, which is unjust when it's devalued. So it's unjust to treat someone with indignity or as worthless. This indignity or devaluation is not a small stub. I, snub. I, I find the word indignity be usually used trivially with someone that's a little bit embarrassed or something like that. You've, you've caused them indignity. It means something much deeper here uh, when it's used in this setting. It's indignity, or denying someone dignity, is is the root of injustice itself. It's to treat a human being as if he or she were something else, like a shovel or another tool. Murder would be the extreme example of this. You're treating someone who's just it's nothing to, to snuff out their life and their future. Aristotle, who had no idea of human rights, called a slave a human tool, which makes perfect sense within his uh, philosophical framework and why he was so destructive later on in history of uh, humanity. Uh, describe someone's human rights, to describe someone's human rights is to describe how to treat them in a way that corresponds to their true worth, value, dignity, with justice. Given that, there must be something within us that is so valuable that we have legitimate claims to be treated according to those human rights. What is it? When we're trying to ask the question of why human rights, this is what we're getting at. What is it about us that we can, if we can, rightly claim to have rights? What could be this be it that's the the, the seat of such value and dignity. We need an answer to that question if if we're going to take civil rights or human rights seriously. Um, And that's uh, a huge issue here. Some people have come up with uh, various suggestions, but um, I I have difficulty with them. I'll talk about that when I talk about a Christian resolution of this. It's very hard, for example... Uh, it has been very hard to come up with something that can be a believable suggestion for 
the human dignity that makes their rights uh, legitimate without making people radically unequal to each other by their possession or non-possession of those things that give them dignity. You see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a tension between what gives dignity and what could possibly be a reason to have all people are equal in this in this way. I'm going to deal with that later, Lord willing. <laughs> um, so I talked about what the level, what, what, what a right is, and also talk about what an answer to the to why human rights uh, might be, but uh, just pointed out how that can get a bit problematic. Uh, now I want to shift to the more history part of the talk, um, because I wanted to do this because a bunch of philosophers, Christian philosophers, writing about this, all want to differentiate themselves from they say what what they call the old story which is how we've been taught to think of human rights as the crowning achievement of the Enlightenment and having nothing to do with the Christian faith at all. Um, and so some very able Christian thinkers have, have gone at this and tried to re- reshape it. And because the old story is what's in most of our history books, I think it's worth getting that on the table and getting yourself uh, aware of that because it means you may get it uh, as you read history. Um, background first. Um, from ancient times, this I'm, I'm going to give you the old story now, so I'm going to give you something I don't believe, uh, but just to lay it out for the next couple of minutes, don't believe what I'm telling you, but, uh, but believe what uh, that this is a, a story that's out there. For ancient times, the Christian church was so tangled up in the Roman Empire and power grabs and confusion with the Roman Empire right into the medieval time and with its inquisitions, crusades, superstitions, hierarchies, priesthood, and canon law that they never paid any attention to what we call human rights, to the big, big picture of humans as human beings. Um, when the Reformation came along, the church was also dealing with so much with religious conflict and then religious wars. Uh, the, the dominating wars between the, the uh, empires of Europe. Uh, and the church's thinking has been too narrow to engage in these things. Uh, then with the growth of science and with new philosophical understanding that we call the Enlightenment that was uh, built a lot around, the new science, especially in France and England, 17th and 18th, 18th centuries now, uh, they say that w- with our science and, and the use of reason, in our experience, we can understand the world itself and basically what we need to know to live in it well, make a better government, society, and so on, much better without the Christian faith, without the Bible, but with our reasoning, with our experience, with our understanding, with our science. There's no need for the church or the Bible. The Bible is like an umbilical cord. It needs to be cut and removed uh, to allow us to be free to grow up. Um, it represented the authority of God, which brought a dim pall over the whole uh, of life, of sin and of authority and priestcraft and so on, um, cutting us off from our freedom to be able to make a better world free from superstitions and discouraging teachings like, um, like sin. Uh, but with much of the Enlightenment, um, the practical 
goals. Here I'm, I'm shifting from their standard story to, to uh, more of my own reflection on it. The standard goals were intriguingly, the political goals were fairly close to those of Christians. The difference was the ideas of justice, human dignity, the need for law to stand over government. Um, the thing that was different was they thought they, could, they didn't need the Bible to get there, that they could just learn this from their experience and from their wisdom and from their, uh, their knowledge, their science. Um, they believed that human dignity, justice, rule of law, and so on, and equality uh, was discovered by them. In fact, I would say they had inherited it from hundreds of years of exposure to Christian truth in different forms, uh, in terms of church liturgy, in terms of stained glass windows, in terms of music, in terms of, you know, they have hundreds of years of exposure to the Christian faith behind them. This is Europe we're talking about. Um, and so to, to, to think they've stumbled on these things themselves uh, is, is extraordinary. Um, God was there for many deists, not all of them, but he was the god of deism, which is a much more remote god, uh, <clears throat> not so engaged in us personally. He created things, but he's sort of ob- observant from a distance. Um, but we don't, and he, we, we can learn uh, about him what he wants us to know through our wisdom and through our reflection. Uh, human rights, again, uh, uh, in the view of the Enlightenment, um, this is seen as um, the supreme one of, one of the supreme achievements of the Enlightenment was to come up with something like, say, the Declaration of Independence in America. Jefferson, using <clears throat> um, leaning heavily on someone like John Locke, who also was both a Christian and a, a major leader in Enlightenment thinking, um, where they would point to as this is the achievement of the Enlightenment. Um, <clears throat> The, I'll read you the, the second paragraph out of the Declaration, though it's very familiar to you, but just I want to highlight some phrases. We hold these truths to be self-evident, uh, and that's pointedly the case, uh, that we don't hold, the, the source is not the Bible, it's the self-evidence of these truths. Um, extraordinary statement, actually. I'm not sure anybody really believed it was self-evident, but Jefferson couldn't say we hold these truths from the Bible. Uh, he didn't believe, not dishonest, he just didn't believe it, nor did other deists. So we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In fact, the first draft of the Declaration was written by Jefferson, but very much worked over and hammered over by Adams and Franklin, then finally approved, after a lot more editing, uh, by the representatives of all 13 colonies. So it's not all as if it was Jefferson's work. Uh, He uh, knew it had to pass muster with a whole mess of Christians and deists of different stripes uh, who would have to agree with it for it to get anywhere. uh, again, it was written to be to be agreed on uh, by a wide group of people. It's not just a sort of a, a, an enlightenment, uh, a homegrown document. Um, it represented a consensus on them that they, they could all stand on, and practically speaking, very soon they were willing to fight for. John Adams, as you 
see some of his own writing at the very early stages here to, to sign this or not or whatever he's saying. I, I, that means if we lose this revolution, revolution, I will be hung, which is true. He would have been as a traitor, and all of them would have been hung. And it was everyone who signs signed the declaration would have been hung if the if the English would be able to catch up with them. Um, so was it? It was at a. Uh, they had skin in the game, put it that way. Uh, what I'll suggest is that what was new here was the language and purpose of the declaration, uh, which was the first, I read the first, second paragraph, the first paragraph is, we owe the world an explanation of why we're doing this, why we're starting this revolution. It, it announced to the world that all men are created, the reason is that all we believe all men are created equal, that they have these inalienable rights, and that the legitimacy of government rests on the consent of the governed as a statement to the world. Uh, this is why we must declare independence from Britain. The language of the situ- uh, and the situation were new. The systematizing of these ideas w- was new. The ideas themselves were not new at all, except for this idea of it being self-evident, which... I, as I said, I'm not sure anybody believed that. Uh, almost nothing is self-evident of such importance. Uh, now, I'll give you the revised story, uh, which is much longer because I want to back up a lot more and look at the Bible itself, because it goes. The story goes much back, goes way back uh, <clears throat> behind European history. Um, and then I'll look at the history of the church. Um, first, for the Old Testament, of course, the place to start is Genesis 1, 26 and following. God creates man and woman in his image and, and likeness, distinguishing them from the animal world, telling them to be stewards of the garden and to populate the earth. Uh, the, the, the implications of this are huge, and I, I can't go anywhere near... But let me just quickly mention that the, the, the definition of what he's doing and who they are differentiates words or differentiators, theological categories or differentiators, uh, differentiates them up from angels and from God. They're not God. They're creatures of God. Differentiates them down from animals because they're made in God's image. They're not animals or they're not uh, with the animals. So they're differentiated both up and down so that we know who we are, where we stand. Uh, enormously important all uh, for the whole rest of the story. Um, this is the story of the whole creation, not of some little tribe. Uh, so we have to, as we read the Bible on this topic, to, look, to looking for, for clues to human rights, um, you have to discern when is the Bible talking about some local issue uh, that is just a uh, something someone has to resolve, and when is the Bible raising something that is just suggesting humanity as a whole? Uh, and here the story is very clear. This is the big picture. This is humanity as a whole. This is the first, the beginning of the race. This is followed by the fall, rebellion against God, and then this first family. The older brother kills the younger brother, right in Genesis 4. Uh, they're old enough to be more or less adults, I guess, to, to be working, have jobs uh, in the field. But it, this tells us right away after the fall 
that things are really not well with the human race. I don't think we, we I don't think we emphasize Cain and Abel as much as the, as the story would call for us to emphasize uh, Cain and Abel. And what it is after just this glorious creation, everything good, and then here, right in there, the first family, the first two kids, one kills the other. I mean, um, despite the fact that God has created us good and as social beings, that's an important part I'm going to come at again, uh, he's created us as social beings, we would have trouble, we're going to have trouble living together, is what is being suggested. There will be, have a, there will be a time of, of, uh, of need for social ordering. Again, about the social beginning. Uh, the Enlightenment, what you see is people's talking about, this is much later, I'm jumping ahead, a little uh, parenthesis. You hear uh, people start about Hobbes and Locke. There was a state of nature, and the first individuals wandered around, got to talk to each other, got to figure out how we're going to relate to each other, and in that state of nature, they created some sort of society. But of individuals, each protecting their backside, and how can we do this so that we survive? Um, but the whole frame was where, where, where we, who we are actually there is, is as individuals. The Bible, no, it's a social reality. It was not good that it was man alone. Adam was alone for a little while, but not long, uh, because it was not good that he was alone. And the whole biblical story is that we are created to be social beings, okay? And that comes up uh, a, a lot. Um, the second event here, main event, is the flood story reiterating the human identity as God's images and the need for a, a legal structure because of the extreme value and dignity of being a human being. Uh, consequently, the extreme seriousness of killing a human being, of taking human life. Genesis 9-6, after the flood, whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his image God made humankind. Now, there's a lot uh, packed into that. Right away, we have a strong sense of this, this, the reality of the image of God, but that that creates a human right. There's a human right attached to that. You take that life away, and you have violated that right. You've taken away something precious to God, and, and you've, you've created a wrong. There's a duty and obligation of all human beings to respect each other's dignity and value or face serious punishment. And I would say that isn't just murder, that's that's all sorts of physical abuse or mental abuse, uh, social, relational uh, abuse. We're not meant to abuse one another uh, because we're images of God. Uh, It also, I think, suggests the need for some Criminal justice system. There's an idea here of punishment. Uh, criminal justice uh, to enforce that. Notice, um, importantly, um, it does not say that it's wrong to, sh- to, to shed the blood of only a virtuous human or it's wrong to shed the blood of a rich human or of humans of a certain race. Or it's wrong to shed the blood of someone from a good family. Or even from someone who's faithful to God. It says it's wrong to shed the blood of any and every human being. Because he or she is the image of God. Even a bad one. 
given the placement of this statement in the story, it speaks of a human right to life, but without using the formality of the big words of systematizing it all in, in, in formal statements. But it gives, gives you a lot of information here, I think, about uh, the human right to life and to respect, uh, of having a dignity internally uh, because of being in the image of God and and that being key to our to our rights. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have God's revelation to his people, his nation, much of which is narrower than, uh, than a universal concern. But again and again, it, it, the, the, the breadth of the, of the moral teaching of the Bible spreads out on you. And, and uh, I, I just think of the, the whole story of the Jewish nation is about the family of Abraham, who was given in, back in Genesis 12, he was given an international vision of what his family was going to be going to become in the future. Uh, I will make of you a great nation. And the next verse, uh, uh, verse two of Genesis twelve, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we must remember the universal force of this promise to Abraham, which was with the Jewish people uh, the whole of their, of their of their time through, aware of this that the family of Abraham was going to be a blessing out. Uh, to the nations. It was remembered by his descendants. So when we read something like the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, uh, they were part of the covenant with the Jewish nation, but you can sense, you can get a sense that they apply way out uh, beyond that of how, not just how this nation has got to prosper to maintain its freedom and not go back into slavery, but but by obeying these commandments, um, well, the, the Ten Commandments as I've lectured before uh, in the last couple of years, is a very, very social set of commandments. It's a very social document. It's a huge weight of it, how we can get along to each with each other and honor uh, God by the way we treat each other. Um, we are social beings, and what we need is to be able to flourish in community. And this is how to do it. These duties as rights are to be respected for that purpose. Some of the first real social criticisms some of the, these philosophers of human rights say was from the Old Testament prophets. Um, they applied a pretty consistent criteria, uh, so it's not a secret how they judge society. The concern, by and large, is not how are the rich and powerful treated, uh, because the rich and powerful have a way of protecting themselves by, on their own steam. Um, it was again and again uh, to find out how a society or a nation honors God and whether they do it or not. The prophets looked, how does that nation treat the poor, the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the disadvantaged, the fatherless, the sojourner, we would call a refugee. Uh, are they seen as images of God and so valuable before God that their unmet needs are recognized as obligations by other people? Uh, I think of Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. People were complaining about them, about their pray, but it doesn't seem, seem to do any good. Our lives still don't go, go anywhere even after we've prayed. Uh, complaining about all their fasting, and it doesn't seem to make a difference. Isaiah replied, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? 
Is it not the sh- to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, to cover them and not hide yourself from your own kin? How can you expect a relationship to God and not do this, these things? Do these things and you'll have, you'll, that will, that will uh, radically improve your relationship uh, to God. Uh, this kind of relate, this kind of message is repeated again and again through the prophets, uh, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos. It's not a secret. It's, uh, no prophet ever blows a trumpet and makes, makes a declaration, having off of the basic necessities of life as a, a universal human right, something like this. That's not the language of the prophets. Uh, and yet, again and again, they remind the people. You're not taking care of the, of the poor. You're not taking care of the orphan. You're not taking care of the widow. Um, I have to be reminded of this, the, of, of, the, of the obligation end of rights. These are people that you're living with that have rights under me, rights that I've given them, and here you're not respecting those rights. Um, wake up. The idea of rights occurs in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It, 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 as I said before, it often starts with duties, uh, revealing rights through duties first. Um, but again and again, it has to do with care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Uh, they have, and, and a lot, many times, is people have a right to their wages. Their work is worth something. People, ought, you ought to pay the worker for their way, their wages. That occurs how many times? In New Testament and Old Testament. Even Paul uses it of Christian leaders. Um, he even uses it of the ox deserves its food, who grinds the grain. Uh, and so, uh, so uh, the, the church leader deserves something uh, to, to, uh, for his hard work. I can't help thinking that the prophet's message relativizes our sense of the sacredness of private property. Uh, I think a lot of it is coming from the role, the significance of Locke, of John Locke, and his ideas of private property being a hugely central thing about who we are and what government must guarantee. Uh, I think we've t- swallowed too much of that. I believe, and I mean, well, I'll tell you what the prophets are saying. Uh, the pri- private property is real, and it's a good, but it is not sacred. When someone is lacking basic human needs... And we have the ability to help. We are called to loosen our grip on what belongs to us and help. And it's all, background to that is this whole theology of stewardship. It doesn't belong to us actually at all. Everything we own is on loan from God and is going to be returned back to God when we die, if not before. Uh, but the, the, the picture here is, is, uh, there ought to be a real freedom when we see someone in need of basic human needs. I'm saying that's a, a, a very flexible term. But, but, and if we have something to give, if we're in a place to give, we're, we're up to bat. <laughs> that's, we're, we're in a place where we need to move uh, and, and, to, and to meet that need. Um, I, I think the sacredness of private property has... has uh, cover that over and, 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 and hidden that. I'll mention just two passages in the New Testament that'd be all kinds of things, but I'll just, I, I'm trying to be <clears throat> uh, brief. 
Um, but I'll mention these two because they have been really significant to, to Christian people in the, in, the, in the history of the church. Uh, one is the picture of the final judgment in Matthew 25, where Jesus said that um, to some people that they had welcomed and cared for him in hunger, thirst, lack of clothing, and sickness, and when he was in prison, and to others that they had not done those same things. Both groups were baffled because they couldn't think of any times when he had, uh, they had to, they'd met him in these circumstances. Uh, but then to the first group, he said, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And to the second group, he said, truly, I say to you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these families, you did not do it to me. And this for, this is a picture of the final judgment when we were all uh, meet with the Lord. And uh, for obvious reasons, this has been a very sobering teaching throughout the history of the church. It built a very, very strong doctrine of hospitality in the early church right away. Uh, so that even in the plagues, as plagues come through, you have Christians doing incredibly uh, just extreme radical things of caring for people in the plagues and, and, and things like this. Hospitals were invented, really, uh, if we know them now, by early Christians, particularly in plague times and so on, but just in, in caring for people, not just Christ, not just other Christians, but anybody. who was there, even their enemies who've been persecuted them in some of these uh, situations. But this is, this asks all, uh, us all to do an enormous, what I would call an extension of your imagination, uh, that you see in the least of God's people, or, or not of, of human beings, an extension of Christ himself. The dignity, that there's a dignity and value there in the least of the people you'll run across that uh, you need to see Christ there. And all the people you might be tempted to look down on for their lack of importance or whatever, uh, you need to see that there is Christ. What a... uh, a powerful, powerful thing to, to, to keep close to us. The second passage, uh, again, very familiar to us, is that Galatians 3.28, there's no longer Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave or free, there's no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that there are no differences between us, that the differences here pointed to are illusion, but he's saying what he's rejecting is the hierarchies that have, the social hierarchies that have come through those differences. Now, these hierarchies are gone in the Church of Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ. Uh, the hierarchies of economic power and status power and sex, gender, and so on, rad- are, are radically different rights in society. The rights attached to those, to, to, to the, 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 the fat end of those distinctions were huge in the first century. But he's saying in the church, they're not. Someone could, he envisages obviously people, a slave owner and a slave sitting side by side in church on Sunday. Um, and having, being seen equal in this by, by the church leaders and by God. Um, 
So something radically different from society, which, which again, doesn't, as we think from uh, Joshua's last talk last week, it's not a, an abolition of the slavery as an institution, but this is an unbelievably subversive reality uh, to slavery uh, when if this is the church and people go out who are doing this and living this way. But not just slavery, but, but, but uh, ethnic distinctions, Jew-Gentile, racial distinctions, uh, all these things. We, we're, he's taking away the hierarchical uh, component of, of, uh, of these distinctions. The history of the church going on then from the New Testament. There's been some recent historical work that I'm not able to get at really in, this, in, in the time frame here, particularly in the uh, uh, historians researching the medieval church, um, showing that, in fact, even in the midst of canon law, with all the things that we might uh, question about canon law, uh, real human rights issues popping up their heads. Like there's one thing that came out of uh, that, that uh, one aspect of canon law saying uh, there ought to be, in all laws, there ought to be a way that no person has to give witness against himself. Now, that's what we call our Fifth Amendment. I grew up in the McCarthy era where everybody, almost that you'd hear every day, was pleading the Fifth, the Fifth Amendment, because uh, what I would say would, would incriminate me. So I, I don't need to do that. So, but, but this is there in canon law as a, as, as a, a suggestion that this be true for everybody, that no one should be required to, to, to um, give evidence against themselves. I just throw that out as... Because canon law is an intriguing thing. Europe uh, wasn't just a lovely extension of the Roman Empire united. It was the Roman Empire came together and apart and together and apart. It was city-states and warlords and everything all over the place. And the church was the one unifying reality uh, at all. And the church in canon law had tried tried to, in, in, in a way that's legitimate, I think, uh, to, to influence and make as a whole thing, at least let's let get these laws down as how we ought to live together, how we ought to try and uh, uh, work together. Um, and and the, you know, in the midst of all kinds of things, Benedictine monastery has been some fascinating work on, on uh, just how these ideas of the significance of the individual person uh, grew up here. Uh, so some of the early Benedictine monasteries, they they were able to prohibit the appointment of the abbot of the monastery from the bishop. He said, the bishop had to get out of there and let us run the, our own show. And so it was a democratic election of who got to be the abbot. And people come, could come and, and join the monastery who were utterly impoverished, had no education whatsoever, but would grow up, be educated within the, within the monastery, and then become the abbot. In other words, someone with no education or family background or anything could uh, rise up and be elected by the others. So it's... it's and, they had an influence out. They spread out, started more monasteries. It's, things like this are happening through the Middle Ages that are amazing sort of hints of things that we've come to value much more recently. You then have the Reformation, or the time of the Reformation. You get to the um, 15th and 16th century. I'll have a I'll look first at a, at a fascinating Catholic uh, bishop, or he became a Catholic bishop. Some of you have probably heard of him, Bartolome. De Las Casas, uh, intriguing man who was a, a Spanish aristocrat, uh, born in 1486, um, went to Hispaniola, which is 
what we now call at one end uh, Haiti and the other end Dominican Republic. Um, went to Hispaniola to make money, had a farm, plantation, had slaves, and very quickly became absolutely horrified at what he was doing and what everybody else was doing and what the conquistadors, who were all well and fully active, were doing in that area and in Latin America. Um, and he sold his farm, freed his slaves, and went back to Spain to try and persuade the powers that, hey, blow the whistle on this. This is horrendous, what we're allowing to happen under, colon- for under Spanish colonization. Uh, we need to preserve the rights, particularly the indigenous people, who had been attacked, defeated, and then enslaved to work on their own land as slaves, uh, a land that they'd own and develop themselves. And, and he, just, he just saw this as such an absolute offense to so much uh, that, that is true about us. Because they were, indigenous slaves were much cheap, cheaper than bringing slaves from Africa. Because there they are. They're all there, there already, and you've, you've defeated them by, because they were militarily helpless. Uh, he devoted his life to try and change whole, the whole colonizing process. There, in Venezuela, Central America, was countered again and again by huge economic interests. That's, that's a, throughout the church of the history, of the, the church history, Church good intentions, Christian good intentions, were uh, swallowed very often by economic uh, interests and, and Christians buying into those interests rather than uh, more centrally uh, godly ones. Uh, he went back and forth uh, from the islands to Spain. It became fairly dangerous for him to be in the Caribbean uh, because he was he was seen as such a, an opponent of of everybody's money-making scheme, uh, spent the last part of his life uh, trying to work in with high ups in church and government in Spain. He argued and wrote with straight theological reasoning, we are violating a God-given human dignity of indigenous people, uh, as well as slaves brought from Africa. His best-known work is, is uh, a short account of the destruction of the Indies. So he He's not hiding his intention, even in the title. A quote from that, I think it's a quote. I'm not absolutely positive because I couldn't quite tell the way it was presented. Uh, The native people still own their property rights and rights to their own labor. To treat them as less than human violates the laws of God, nature, and Spain. Uh, He's got a grip on human rights here. And uh, he was part of a group of people in the Catholic Church trying to uh, deal with these ideas in, in Spain, but not, unfortunately, terribly successfully. Going on, I want to touch on Calvin and Calvin's followers here, shifting over to the, the Protestant side of things. Um, <clears throat> he overlapped, actually, quite a bit time-wise with, with uh, Las Casas, died within a, two, a year or two of him. Uh, but he was younger. He, Calvin born in 1509. He would have been, uh, Luther would have been in school at that point. Calvin was French, studied law and theology, would have studied canon law, would have studied Roman law, uh, was converted to Luther's ideas around 1530, um, and then had a lot of ideas of his own. We associated not so much with France, but with Switzerland, because much of his time was spent in Geneva as a pastor, as a theologian and leader there. We usually think of his theology, he's been known more for his theology than anything, 
But he and those who followed him were as Christian lawyers who were very bright and creative, fascinated by the fact that without the Catholic Church uh, and being able to be independent of the Catholic Church, in certain parts of the world anyway, we can restructure what the Catholic Church had structured for us and left sort of crusted and, and, and fixed. We can really tackle reforming society in a way that uh, many people have not been able to. Uh, and he seemed obsessed, one of the uh, people writing about him here in the context of human rights, obsessed with freedom. Freedom to open his Bible and learn not just about salvation, but especially from Paul's letters, the possibility to reshape society toward, uh, toward freedom. Uh, get out from under the laws and regulations of the church that have been there before him with the Bible as a guide, not just to do whatever he wants, but with the Bible very much as a guide. Uh, one historian describes the last last 23 years of his life uh, as a building case, as building his case for freedom. He quotes, uh, he quotes him endlessly. I'll give you a few. There's nothing more desirable than liberty. Liberty is an inestimable good, uh, something that is worth more than half of life, etc. And context here, he saw, uh, he's a tremendous respecter of Augustine, but he broke with Augustine over the state. He would have seen Augustine as too influenced by Platonism, uh, never really completely escaped from his Platonism, and so didn't value creation uh, as much as the Bible values creation, uh, which starts with creation as good. Um, but as a result, Augustine's view of the state is that it's, uh, it's, need, it's, it's necessary there uh, to put it, to sort of keep a lid on human sin and to prevent chaos from happening. So the role of the government is more or less a negative role just to keep chaos uh, at, at, at bay. He saw uh, a, very, a much more positive vision. He's renowned for a brutally strong view of sin, but it, so it's hard for people to believe what uh, his positive view of society, and really believing in a serious view of sin, uh, to use society as ameliorating that, as working against that, and as working toward righteousness in its work toward freedom. Uh, it reminds me, listening to some of this stuff, reminds me of someone who said, what is a good society? A good society is a society in which it is easy to be good. That's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, because you can think of societies which are not a society where there are no clear laws, a society where there are laws, this is what, what Las Casas run into so much in, in Guatemala, there are laws standing, but nobody enforces them. So anybody can get away with anything, and you are totally unsafe. Mm-hmm. Because there's no, there's no, it's, there's impunity throughout. Uh, so it's very hard to be good. It takes a really righteous person to be, to be good in a chaotic, anarchic situation. Anyway. Uh, he, Calvin saw that, uh, as I said, God's created us as social beings. Uh, we need, because of sin, where we need an order in society uh, in ways that will help us love God, love each other, and deal with differences in life. How to, so a huge amount of, pre- how do we prevent tyranny? How do we encourage faith, uh, in God, uh, and, and in cooperation with one another? He, this surprised me during this reading. He was the one who, at least I suspect, was the first one to use there's a wall of separation between church and state. 
Jefferson gets credit for that 250 years later. Um, and and uh, that he supposedly invented it. it. It's in Calvin's commentary on Ephesians. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, because what, what he's saying is, is not, a, not a detailed layout of church-state relations, but, hey, there are different, there are different things to do. Uh, the, the church needs to preach the gospel, needs to serve the Lord's Supper. The state should never serve the Lord's Supper. The state's not responsible for serving the gospel. The state's responsible for uh, ruling, for punishing, for having an army. The, the church should never have an army. The Pope had an army uh, as, as he wrote this, uh, protecting the Pope's land uh, against, against uh, Charles V. But, but, but uh, what he's trying to do is, is, is lay out a wall of separation in terms of the, the, the differences that are there in their function. Um, one of the most important ideas uh, in, in Calvin's influence, I think, was originally Luther's ideas, the idea of the priesthood of all believers. The idea is that it's not just priests, nuns, and so on, and official church workers that are, live a religious life. We all are religious in the way we live our lives. We all serve God as we teach school, as we farm in the field, as we do, as we're a politician or whatever. Uh, Calvin really emphasized this and developed... Uh, uh, a, a, a very strong notion of vocation, which went with his ideas uh, wherever they went, and which hugely impacted this country. Uh, Osgood says, actually, the, the, the strongest uh, impact of the Puritans on America was the doctrine of vocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can do something as we serve God. Anything that's pleasing to God uh, is not a... What we would... We talk about here is the lordship of Christ over all of life, as opposed to being a, a sacred sec- secular uh, division. Um, but that was hugely uh, powered by Calvin. I think his social reforming ideas are responsible for a lot of his following, especially in Northern Europe, um, in France, until St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in the late 16th century. That's just amazing. That uh, It's irrelevant to this talk, but as most of you have probably heard of that, France, actually there were two million Protestant, Protestant Christians followers of Calvin in France uh, in 1560, 1562, I think somebody counted this. Um, there was, can't get into it, but there was a, a Catholic, highly organized Catholic massacre of Protestants in high places in, in the, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre which wiped out the leadership of the Protestant uh, church in France, period. The history, European history would be very, very different without this, because they're, they're people of very high standing. They would, they, a lot of people say that France might have tipped Protestant as a Protestant country uh, had this not happened within 20 or 30 years after that. Uh, but uh, that, that, was, that was his influence uh, reaching out. Um, but his influence was it was also particularly in the Netherlands, England, Scotland, and then going from there to the New World. Biza, who had followed him uh, in, in Geneva, in leading Geneva uh, as, as a pastor there, um, was also a lawyer and a theologian. So he was interested as well in, in civic justice very much. Um, particularly, how do you uh, how do you hold off tyranny, but then also when, uh, what right do you have? Rights do you have um, uh, 
when uh, what of yours needs to be breached in order for you to rebel against the tyrant? In other words, what right do you have of the right of revolution? Uh, and, or at least organized resistance. Uh, as he followed Calvin and, and uh, concluded the most basic right is the right of freedom of conscience, the free exercise of religion. If religion is uh, forced, then nothing can be sacred or secure any longer. Um, another man of importance that I, I know very little about was a German living very close to the Dutch border, and so he's very, very influential in Holland, uh, Johannes Althusius, uh, but again, huge influence in, in Northern Europe uh, following Calvin, um, bringing into government. Um, the, the states were so chaotic, in his case with uh, Spanish invasion and huge uh, uh, wars and, dis, and, and, and disunity, that's there between Protestant and Catholic. Uh, they had, there was room for someone who is a serious thinker to say, okay, how can we put things together in this, out of this chaos? Uh, but he brought, worked very hard to bring the idea of covenant, uh, into, uh, into, uh, government, into structures, different levels of, of organization. Uh, tyranny could be resisted if there are, if there are levels of organization and association lower down all the way up so more people have a play in their a part in their governments in their own governments um, he developed very much the idea of consent of the governed long before Locke did and certainly before Jefferson did uh, someone's, you know, it was the, the authority of the state it rests on the consent of the governed uh, and, and the, the, the bill of associations and the, the idea of covenants uh, stimulated this and, and of course the, the they were going back to the covenants in the Bible, where even when God was one member of the of the covenant, it was not a unilateral unilateral command. It was a covenant. God says, "This is the way I want it to be." And do you respond? Are you? Will you obey? Again and again, the, the question is asked. Okay, will the people respond and accept this? And they do. But that that two sidedness is what makes a covenant, and that's picked up and and used. Uh, it's very much behind. Uh, the democracies that we are used to in uh, Northern Europe and in this kind of the pond. Um, and, of course, these ideas came across the, the Atlantic with the Puritans. Uh, I'm fascinated with, maybe some of you are familiar with Marilyn Robinson, the, the novelist, but she's written a lot on the Puritans, and she's fascinated with what they've brought across uh, in, in, uh, uh, with, from the English Reformation. Uh, particularly, she uh, it's a fascinating article on on how John Winthrop, when he gets here, again coming in the con- in, in the tradition of Calvin and all that he's followed, uh, he says, "What what are we doing uh, in England with the poor laws? We don't need to continue that here. We want to build what we're doing on the Bible. We're not going to have the poor laws. The poor laws required poor people to never move from the town they were in, even though there was no way to earn a living there. They couldn't move without breaking the law." because people needed them there to do whatever they needed to do. So there wasn't the mobility that allowed poor people to move and get a better job and get a work, better work. And he says, forget this. That's a ridiculous idea. And, and uh, that was actually one of, the, one of the chaplains under Oliver Cromwell in the Puritan Revolution worked on ideas like this. 
but said that it's, that the Reformation was a ferment of creative ideas about democratic life, is what I'm trying to say. And, and uh, out of this comes all sorts of insights about human rights and where they go. Okay, finally, here, looking at a Christian contribution to human rights. Um, as I've tipped my hand, in a way, I've, the, the answer to the question of why human rights, what could be, could give human beings the dignity that would make their rights legitimate, uh, I think this is very much... Uh, it's the image of God. It's that we are made the image of God. It's the hinge pin of human rights. Now you remember the question why that many people could not uh, really answer. There has to be a source of dignity, value, and worth in every human being so great that it makes human rights legitimate, which means valuable enough to make our duties and obligations and responsibilities legitimate and required. Because we never have just rights. We have duties and responsibilities. The image of God nails down, what the image of God nails down is a dignity in the sight of God, which is an intrinsic dignity. Because it's in the sight of God, rather than some human analysis of what another human being is worth, it's in the sight of God, it's true for everyone not dependent on race, class, family, money, education, intelligence, sex, or achievements in your resume. Uh, It's a dignity that belongs to each of us by God's creation in his likeness. We are not just clever animals. We are like God. And this is intrinsic dignity, which means that with all the, um, across all the variables. Because of this, only because of this, and this is the amazing thing, um, this is why the, I think the, the very idea of human rights probably would not have arisen were it not for the Christian faith. Uh, because of this, we have ultimate equality, ultimate equal dignity with each of us. Our images of God establishes our equality with each other in God's sight, despite all our thousands of inequalities. We are unequal to each other here in this room. In thousands of variables, we're different from each other. Some of you can run faster, some of you can think faster, some of you are more gifted than this, than the other. We're not equal in anything that, that we can measure, that you can observe, that you can add up, that you can tabulate. Um, we're just a muddle of inequality. Uh, but you see, we're equal in our images of God equal in our likeness to God in this being sense of, in the sense of our being um, we're unequal in anything we could observe or measure uh, so it means the, the, the image of God teaching is, 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 is uniquely fits what it's what one it really has come from not because it fits that to the, the, the human rights thing but it's come from uh, the human rights thing has already emerged from the the the, uh, the image of God. If we take what it is to be in the likeness of God seriously, it is a big enough idea with enough authority to move us uh, to find uh, strength ourselves when we're feeling, we ourselves are feeling subhuman. Uh, 
ourselves or our total lack of value or worthiness. Uh, I remember a statement of, of Kafka uh, where as a, as a younger man he, he would stand in the corner and say, feeling, I'm not sure I have a right to breathe. I don't think I have a right to breathe. Uh, and it's that that the image of God speaks to. It's a rock to come back to in our times of total, total personal devaluation. It's also a rock for us when we are taking a position of high moral authority and perhaps demonizing someone who's done serious evil, real evil, uh, but who is not actually a demon. is an image of God who's done something seriously wrong. Is still in God's image, living in a world in which God is a God of grace. It's It has enough clout. It's a big enough idea when we, uh, as the moral authority, to keep us hoping in someone that we love where we're tempted to give up and be resigned on them going nowhere in their life. And hope being tempted to give up because of our experience of of it, it seemingly being worth giving up. He or she is still in the likeness of God. Again, in a world where God is the God of grace. The God who gives rights is is also the God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has also created us as social creatures thriving in community. That means, I remember Schaefer talking about this at, at great length, took great great strength in the fact that God is, that unity and diversity are within God the Godhead himself. God is one and God is three. And neither unity nor diversity are ultimate. Uh, but we need both. Uh, it, we, we, we both are in God and we uh, need rights of individuals and rights of communities both. We can't sacrifice one to the other in the discussion between, say, Christianity and Marxism. Um, there's something to the Marxist idea, the, the right of a collective, the right of community. Uh, there's also very much something in the West about the right of the individual. We need to stand for both, with groups as small as families and groups as large as nations. Uh, but nobody said it was going to be easy. Uh, what rights come with God's image? That's uh, too big a question for my pay grade, I'm afraid. But uh, I'll only toss out some suggestions. You know, if someone wants a list of what are human rights, I'm not sure someone can just sit down and give them. And I think they're much more flexible than that. Um, some Christians would say that humans have a right to the necessities of life, at least. And I suspect that's true. Things that make life possible. Food, clean water, shelter, clothes to wear, health care, uh, work. Uh, but you have to add for it to be a right when and where there are available and pe- they are available and people whose obligation is to deliver it. If someone just goes and lives on a desert island and they get sick and they want want help and there's no one there, you can't say they have a right to medical help. Uh, So there's something situational behind rights all the time which makes it very complicated and dangerous to say, well, this is a right, that is a right. Um, 
uh, I'd want to add that uh, the right of faith that we have, we decide, whatever we decide to trust in is certainly a basic right. Uh, persuasion is fine, but no one should try to take our freedom away from us. Uh, there are many possibilities, but we need to be cautious as, uh, because as we say, somebody's right is somebody else's duty. And, and uh, the two are very much tied together in, in the reality of how we, how we connect to both. Um, present complications, I could go on much longer on this, and, and, but I'll just throw out a couple of things. Um, I spent a lot of time talking about the connection between the image of God and human rights. Uh, we live in a society where most people uh, do not believe in the biblical God in whose image we are made. But, and I've lectured on this a bunch before, without believing in God, they still want to believe that they have the dignity of what it is to be in God's image. In other words, they live with a memory of Christian, of the, the high status of a, of a human being as an image of God. And, and uh, uh, they don't believe in God anymore, but they want to be the image of God still. And I've talked about this being like Alice in Wonderland's uh, this is the grin of the Cheshire cat. And the grin lasts after the cat disappears uh, for Alice. And there's a, there's a epistemological problem there. The cat is gone who had the grin, but the grin is still there. And I think there's that in terms of the with the, the desperate clasping a whole the high view of human dignity that is all over the place uh, of people who have no belief whatsoever in how in anything that could make that possible. Um, most people who do, are around us do their serious thinking, or at least we're not Christians, in secular terms, in a secular vocabulary. And as one of the law professors uh, pointed out here, that, that's interesting. He said, there's no secular translation of image of God. You can't just translate it into secular. It's, it's gone uh, if you do it, because you really need God there. Um, then, then I talked about the Enlightenment giving a, pro- a huge promise of, of creating a better world, a better society, peace and love with each other. Um, and, and a high view of humanity and fulfillment of humanity. That, that promise, I don't want to go here tonight, but that promise really has not been fulfilled uh, at, at any level. I mean, the French Revolution was the first uh, full expression of Enlightenment thought, which ended with the guillotine going on to Napoleon, um, and so on, uh, not, to, not to go there. Um, but but uh, a tremendous failure in just coming up with an idea of human dignity, of uh, being able to say, yes, we, we, uh, we can show you what right and wrong means without the Bible because of our wisdom and our developing it. Um, Nietzsche was one of the most articulate uh, to, to debunk the Enlightenment and his complete disillusionment with it. God is dead, and that death wipes away the horizon of human meanings. And there's no horizon, there's no east, there's no west, there's no up, no down, because we, because you've gotten rid of God. Uh, and that's good, because the individual can, um, in high-level individualism, can stand um, but without a moral order. Uh, Stephen Weinberg 
here, I'll give you... Hey, I pushed the right button. Um, I'll just give you two quotes from people who were who were following Nietzsche and, and just uh, reflecting on what the what, uh, what we what we're left with uh, with with, the, with what the Enlightenment promise started with, which is absolutely nothing. Uh, Steven Weinberg, very anti-Christian, um, anti-religion. The more, but, but a top-flight scientist. The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. And that's an important statement because he's pointing the trajectory of science, which as he sees it, and he sees it as science without allowing God into the picture at all, of of, uh, human autonomy doing its science. Uh, He he sees the trajectory of science being greater and greater reductionism. In other words, we'll, we'll understand everything in smaller and smaller and more basic, more and more basic categories. So it started off, we'll understand people as animals. It then began to move, move and is now much more, we'll, we'll uh-huh. understand people in terms of bio, biochemistry, eventually just physics, uh, uh, of, uh, in, in atomic structures and so on, molecular structures. Um, but then what happens to human beings if we're basically, that's all we are and can be understood most basically in that way? Uh, there's no room for uh, po- having a point. As he said, it will be pointless. There's no room for values, no room for human choice. Um, that, that, uh, George Wall was one of his colleagues at, at Harvard. I think I, I quoted Schaefer in another lecture doing, saying this, said that there was, um, there was a group of molecules 400 years ago that wrote Hamlet, and we call it Shakespeare. Mm. That's that's where the Enlightenment. Are you? We don't need God. We can go forward. We'll just do our science and but greater, greater reductionism, greater, greater in, inability to cope with the reality of what actually we experience every day, being human beings. Uh, the British philosopher E. M. Jode. He was. Uh, very high visibility in, during the Second World War and slightly after. Uh, although there was scientific basis for saying that a man was the highest primate, there was none for placing him outside the animal kingdom in the manner of unique rights. He was only the star performer in the zoo. Suppose then someone put him in a cage or made a slave of him. Was there any biological or sociological law that said this could not be done? Of course there wasn't. Uh, and, and here again, this is what's become of trying to look at meaning questions and human value without any transcendent point of reference. Uh, even those who agree with the two quotes here very likely have some internal hope in human dignity and human rights and human meanings that they really hold to, that have no place in the picture, in the big picture they have of the world. Uh, the picture they have of the world eliminates them. Uh, to me, this is a great challenge and a challenge of Christian apologetics. How can we connect uh, with people who have not given up the, some idea? So, so many people who believe this absolute uh, scientific determinism uh, are also politically very liberal and believe in all sorts of causes that we ought to, we ought to chase and follow. Now, where do these values come from? They come out of uh, it's alchemy. It's come out of... Uh, 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 out of thin air. 
um, worldview closes off human value and reason for human value and worth. Uh, and and, and we, we hold on to that despite having a big picture that has no room for it. Okay, I've only t- touched on a, on the, on a, a huge issue here, uh, only as a, in passing, but it's that believing in human rights, I've been talking about believing in human rights, is not the same as living them out. Duh. Uh, I've got around that because I, I uh, wanted to deal with the other issue first. There's always slippage between the uh, our ideas of human rights and our ability to live them out. Sometimes a lot of slippage. American history, we can say a lot of wonderful things about European democracies and American democracy and so on. And America, uh, wonderful things about America. But America has a lot to say in this. I just, uh, I'll just point out one thing that, is, is, that has jarred me. Uh, our, our country is built on a revolution inspired by the truth that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And that was one of the things that gave people uh, uh, worth fighting for. It's also true that that of the first 12 presidents of the United States, 10 of them owned slaves. The first 12, 10 of the first 12 presidents of the U.S. owned slaves personally, some a lot. Jefferson, probably 300. Uh, Washington, a couple of hundred, but he at least freed them at his death. Uh, only two didn't. <laughs> the two Adamses. The story of someone who loved Abigail Adams and gave her a slave as a birthday present. She freed the slave on her birthday on the same day. We're dealing with the same problem, with that problem, with the fallout, the downstream problems of that today, all over the place with racial issues in this country still now. A lot of our human rights problems are a continuation of, of those problems uh, that, that are still with us. Uh, our believability in being able to talk about God or his image will depend to some degree on how much we live by the human rights talk we talk about. <laughs> uh, how much we recognize the human rights questions, and respond to the duties, obligations, and responsibilities that come with believing in those rights. I think that's... I mean, that comes at us in all sorts of different ways, personally, in our personal lives, and also in our political alignments. Uh, in terms of our political alignments, um, I, I always like Dr. Schaefer's point of saying we in a, in a democracy as Christians need to be able to find co-belligerents with us on, different, on certain issues that we are strongly committed to without feeling that by being a co-belligerent with them we are necessarily an ally with them. In other words, he is fine being a, with a, a co-belligerent with a Marxist on certain issue without at all uh, becoming a Marxist himself. And I think when we the alternative is to join a package and just sign in and be obedient to the package. Either Republican or Democrat. I can't, I can't sign on to either Republican or Democrat uh, uh, party. Uh, 
uh, as it is, but I can I can look for what I can find in each party and what to fight against in each party. Um, we need to resist being packaged. And I think we're at a time when a lot of human rights Christians are getting now a, a very bad rap, perhaps deservedly, oh, I think definitely deservedly, for the, the white evangelical church. You think of what the white evangelical church is, is, is known for now. It's uh, it's a great deal, I think, for those of us, uh, well, for me anyway, that's something I see we need to start climbing out of somehow. We need to resist that somehow by standing strong ourselves in whatever way we can to these things that are that are being, re- these rights that are being roughshod over. Um, and, and again, they are flexible at every point of time. So finally here, why bother with human rights? I'll, I'll end with a, a line, not end with it, but point out a line by uh, Nicholas Waltersdorf, who I've leaned on a bit in this talk. Um, he says, why bother talking of rights? Because talking of rights gives us a language to talk about wrongs. Mm-hmm. And the reason I've tried to, to go get a little bit sort of with a bit of analytic philosophy on the on the rights discussion is it enables you to talk about, to see what a right is and so what a wrong is and what's at stake in each of them. Goodness knows we live in a world where it's important to be able to understand rights and wrongs clearly. And if we see rights as an expression of simply treating people as they truly are, uh, justice treating people as they truly are, uh, as opposed to injustice, denying the dignity and value of who, who truly are, who people truly are. That gives me uh, a hope, a direction, uh, but I have to close saying, may God have mercy. So I'll stop there, and um, sorry for going on so long, but uh, any, uh, any thoughts here, questions, additions, subtractions? Uh, yeah. Any thoughts about what ought to be a right? What sorts of things ought to be rights? I shouldn't ask you a question first. I'll let you. Mm. thoughts Try to know what wording, what that means. Uh, there's all sorts of rights having to do with sex. Uh, interesting. It's one. Of, it's one of the examples of the use of right in the New Testament is the a married couple having a right to each other's bodies, mutual right, meaning authority, equal authority, equal equal authority over each other's bodies, 
which is amazing, which is totally amazing in the first century. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally amazing. Uh, <clears throat> but that, that that is an interesting uh, way to start that, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a... Uh, it's, our, it's our right, but it's our, and it's it's also put together with the mutual submission that's part of that relationship itself. And, and uh, uh, so, I, I, all I can say is there's all sorts of things that are rights and not rights to do to do with sexual relationships. I don't know whether to get. Walter's Dorf is a really interesting guy. Anyone familiar with his writing? Very much. Sure. Yeah, he, he taught at Cowan for a while. Alan Flanagan was there. Went and taught at Yale. He's now hanging out at the University of Virginia. He's writing books on justice, and uh, he. I, I'm tempted to someday do a, a lecture on John Rawls, who's the Harvard dude, who's sort of mythic grandfather of. Uh, Justice and ethical theory. Uh, Waterstorff totally disagrees with him. Uh, Rawls, and here I'm going to just be really reductive, is going to um, talk about justice being reducible to certain things, and, and it's basically for him it's an equal distribution of stuff, money, burdens, and and blessings. Uh, they need to be equally distributed. And, and all ideas of injustice comes from a violation of that equal distribution of, 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 of things. Um, Waldesdorf says, he, he's come up with a very interesting idea, which I'd love to read more, how, uh, other people's reflection on it. He says, the way to get at justice is, that's completely wrong, to start with some principle and see what, what do you get coming from it. He says, the way to get at justice is to talk to people who are really on the receiving end of injustice and get in their lives and see how, where, what's going on. And he says, it's always at its depth relational. So you could look at, he spent a lot of time in South Africa, you could look at South Africa, African racism, uh, the, the uh, apartheid situation, and, and reduce it to a, a, a bad distribution of property, land, and so on. He says, that's there, sure enough. But beneath that is hatred. An unbelievable arrogance of looking down at other people and manipulating them and may, trying to make them believe that you're you're on their side and you're blessing them and what they're giving you in apartheid is, is only is the best thing for them. You know, all this stuff. To get at real injustice, you've got to get at the human uh, uh, the human tension, the, the, the relationship gone wrong, the human sin and arrogance that's there. Um, he gives rape as an example of how... Uh, Rawls' view is hopeless. Rape does not have to do with an unequal distribution of goods or of anything. It does have everything to do with a relational problem, reducing another person to a tool for your pleasure or whatever it may be, or just someone submissive to your power or whatever. Uh, but, but by starting with that, with a relational dynamic, and he does a whole different view of justice coming from this, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, uh, and and uh, which I think is much I don't know enough about it to know but it, it seems much more fruitful and much more but he's not going to come up with a list of justices of thorough things that are uh, definition ways to, in, to define injustice uh, or what perfect justice is 
uh, it's, and very much would take it to the human rights as to, to the image of God. Uh, but I, I think it's better to think that way, to think of relationally and, and the, the hatred and so on. What that's doing is not giving someone their due, which is respect. And so it, it's refusing to give their due. Uh, it, it's, it's, re- not, it's, a, it's a radical version of disrespect. I mean, it's real disrespect. It's to, it's to harm. Someone is a bully. Uh, it's not just saying the wrong things. It's it's a it's a it's a relational violation. You're not giving them something that ought to be. Uh, you you could frame it that it's a right that we have a right to be treated with civility by everybody. Uh, not everybody's going to do that. What is that? But but people shouldn't treat me uncivilly unless they have a good reason to somehow. Uh, we should be treating each other, even before breakfast, with civility, because we're images of God, uh, and we we should be respected. Uh, obviously, those are minor kind of issues, but, but to me, it's a helpful. I, don't, I just I, I'm afraid I want to buy some more of his books on justice. <laughs> see where see where he's going with it, because it's really it's really quite uh, quite helpful. Or how much he's standing alone with this or not, but it seems to me making it sense of, of um, more of life. I like to mix, like people who are thinking biblically to be making sense of the life we experience in ways that are refreshing, which I think he does. Yeah. Yes, Daniel. My question is related to the image of God um, and how it's marred, it's marred in us, and how uh, you mentioned we're not, the person's not a demon, <coughs> They're just corrupted, maybe. I don't know if you Somewhere short of that, yeah. Short, yeah. yeah. Maybe moving in that direction, but it seems, I'm just trying to understand, is the image of God in us, is it more of a potential that, or a, a possibility for us? In that we don't, you know, when, some, when someone does something horrendously evil, we're not imaging God in that moment. Yeah. But we're we're using it as if there's something underlying that they have the potential to actually image God properly. Yeah. Until until the final judgment. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that because that's one of the things I lopped out and uh, <laughs> with, with grievance. They say murder your darlings. That was a darling that I had to murder. So I'm glad you saved me to bring it back on the table. Uh, to say the the Bible teaches about the image of God in two different ways. Uh, dealing with who we are, our being is made in God's image. That's who we are, no matter how we live, no matter how we behave. We are images of God uh, because of our, by virtue of our creation. Uh, That's one side. The other side is that Christ is the image of God that we are meant to imitate. We are meant to grow toward, the Christian life is growing into the image of God, having the image of God grow in us, which is not just in created, it's redeemed into us. It's becoming more moral, becoming more Christ-like, which involves the agony of growth and, and, and faith uh, as, we, as we grow. So, and so they're quite different things, really, but both the image of God is used both, in both ways in the scriptures. Uh, so, You'd have to say even Hitler was as much the image of God in terms of his being 
as any of them. But certainly not in his, the way he lived. In a way, only an image of God could make could do things as bad as he did. I mean, it takes human creativity and imagination to devise tortures. It looks like a cat tortures a rabbit, baby rabbit out here. If you see them uh, playing with the baby rabbit, the cat isn't it's just it, it, the, the cat is not really trying to make the rabbit suffer. He's just it's it just his way of learning hunting, uh, and and let it go and trying again. And the, and the, the idea of the, the whole idea of getting food and eating and and uh, this is learning how to do it. Uh, but it's not it's not devising tortures. It takes a, someone who made the image of God to have the imagination to devise tortures. Um, awful thought, uh, but but it's true. Animals don't devise again don't devise tortures. Uh, so so even the image of God is there to do to be as evil as we are. Uh, so what is marred? Uh, well, th- th- that part of our being is marred inevitably uh, by uh, whatever the fall has done to us psychologically, physically, whatever, in terms of our what we're born with and what, we're, what we have, but also uh, more on the the image of God as a as a um, as how we're meant to grow, how we're meant to be and grow into uh, is totally bent and has to be unbent uh, in some small way. So that's that's uh, that happens in the course of our life is never complete. But one day when we're in glory, that means we will be in glory. We will be glorious ourselves, and we will be imaging Christ in a way that only we could image him, because we're the, an individual made by God himself. We're not clones. We're not going to be clones in glory uh, either. We're going to be more the individual that we're the, the, than we were on earth, uh, because we're, we're, everything is redeemed of, of our individual uh, characteristics and so on. So I, th- I think it's, it's a really important thing to look at, to, to separate those two sides out and, and say, when the Genesis 6 passage after the flood is very much referring to what's called the ontological images of God, who you, who your, what your being is as an image of God. Whatever you are, you're an image of God, and so you're a value. Uh, but then the, some of the New Testament images of we're growing into God's image in, 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 in being Christ-like. So, did that help at all? Or? Yeah, um, I guess kind of the question there that raises in my mind is or has to do with final judgment so in our understanding of the image of God like or even even judgment here on the earth there comes a time when evil has to be judged and it needs to be taken out in some people's mind other people would say no but uh, in God's final judgment he will put some, you know, there's goats and there's sheep, and, and they were both image of God, but at some point, mm-hmm. he finally judges. So that's kind of my question. Is it? Is he basically saying you are you have are not imaging me properly, and that, so you cannot do it. Like you will not image me, you willingly will not image me. Or? Well, it, it in, in 
in judgment, those who, who are lost are, are um, I don't know, I, 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 I'm not sure where, um, they're, they're still images of God, but they're um, really lost. I mean, more than they, much more than they are in this life, uh, and far from God, distance from God. So they they will have. Um, I, 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 it's we're told so little that I, I I'm nervous about saying what we know, uh, but where they'll be without God uh, in terms of the experience of God as a as a blessing, which more so than anyone in this life, uh, even though someone may hate God. They still are experiencing the blessing of God just by virtue of being alive in this world. Um, so maybe, for your definition, because we're made in the image of God, He will only He judges us according to that. So yeah, you'll do be, that with animals, but because we have that capability to do yeah, good and, or evil. Yeah, and we're, we're. I mean, I think you <clears throat> you you see. Jesus on the cross experiences something of the lostness of being lost in being forsaken by God in our place. <coughs> but that is that was something that would caused him and you know terrible anxiety <coughs> and stress beforehand in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and but again, it's. If we take that as a model, we're dealing with a relational thing more than a physical suffering thing. I mean, it's, it's to be under the judgment of his father, who he had loved and been loved by for all eternity, but his being under the judgment and rejection uh, of his father. I mean, it's just prodigious to think what relationally what that could possibly mean. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure I, I dare go very far, <laughs> uh, just because of how little we know. Or maybe I'm, um, I, I, I've not tried to go very far with that either in terms of uh, my own study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other things? For people? Yeah, Marty. Well, can can you say that the two the two um, the two ways the Bible talks about the image of God that could you say simply one of them is as a noun, we are the image yeah. of God. The other is as a verb, that we image, we're either imaging God or not imaging God. But we are images of God. Yeah. And That's a good way. In thinking, of, in thinking of Matthew 25 passage and the separating the sheep and the goats, I mean, that's a passage, that's a really important passage. And I think it's sometimes misunderstood as if it's teaching salvation by works. If it's teaching, you know, the one, it's going to be the good people that do all the good things that are saved because they did these good things, which I don't think you can square with. I don't think it's there, but I also think you would square it with the rest of, of the teaching. But rather that the, the good, the generosity, the hospitality that the sheep showed was because they understood that God had been so generous to them. It was, it was the fruit of, of their... Um, the fruit of thankfulness to God for having been graciously forgiven, you know, of their sins. Mm-hmm. So it isn't as if the sheep were all perfectly imaging God. Yeah. 
<coughs> you know, as if you know they they get to heaven because they perfectly imaged God, <laughs> where and the, and the goats didn't image God, so you know, and so they are cast out. But insofar as they imaged God as a as a verb, it's because they had received the grace of God and that had come out in this, you know, not even I mean the self unselfconscious not even realized when did I do that, Lord? Just because because out of thankfulness to God's grace to them they'd shown hospitality to others. It had been it had been a knee jerk reaction because of because so it, it it's I think it's really important that but both groups were still images of God in the in the noun sense. But um but the ones who were, in fact, imaging God better in their lives were those who acknowledged their sin <laughs> and, and out of thankfulness to God for his grace, their lives had changed and they'd become yeah, you hospitals. There's a way to read that that could be to eliminate grace altogether. It's a, exactly. That's what, <clears throat> which you it's a, it's a can't possibly do to get away, to get with away everything else he's ever taught. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But I have a different question, unless somebody else wants to finish with that. I have a totally different question. You have it. You've got the floor. Why did it take so long, <clears throat> including for people like Augustine and Calvin and Luther, to include women? You're asking me this. Yeah. Well, I'm, cause I'm working on this lecture for next week, but it took them an awfully long time. I mean, here's Calvin, all your stuff about Calvin and freedom and wanting freedom and and justice and all this stuff, but how come it took, how come they didn't somehow include women in there as deserving of, <laughs> of this right? I mean, Calvin himself wrote, and Augustine did, and Luther did, that women were not images of God in the same way that men were. <coughs> that they were less the image of God than men. And then Augustine wrote, women are only the image of, fully the image of God when they're married. But men are the image of God whether they're married or not. But women are only images of God in relation to their husband. Why the heck? Well, I can tell you what you say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go for it. (laughs) See if it convinces you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I think uh, what you normally say is is. uh, it's Aristotle. Uh, I know you're yeah, the Greeks. And, yeah. and the Greeks got into the, the the lower strata of the thinking process because it makes such sense of, of order and hierarchy and the security in hierarchy. And, and um, we know where to, we, we have a place to put people. And uh, that seemed to make sense. And lo and behold, they created society that way, which didn't produce any educated women because they didn't educate women. They weren't allowed to be educated. And, and, and uh, they could go on uh, with the same ideas for a long, long time. Um, it's, it's uh, I mean, we could think, we could, of course, do the same thing on slavery that Joshua yeah. talked about last, last week. Um, <clears throat> just horrendous. Uh, why have not good Christians seen what the Bible clearly teaches, uh, and and sort of their own conscience ought to erupt and protest mm. over by seeing their theology put into practice. Um, 
so I don't, uh, I don't know. I mean, in slavery, in a sense, it's it's a simpler thing, maybe because it was economics. Yeah. It was really paid, really paid. You see this with Los Casos. He, he, he was setting up a whole uh, colony in, uh, what do you have word for it? It was a, a colony of peace in Venezuela. Because uh, it was going to have no slavery, and it was going to be, uh, he'd had it really structured. And it all set up, and then people started to pull their money out from it, because they weren't sure they'd make, they, they would make money without slaves. Mm. So, and the whole thing finally, it was, he, he spent a few years on this. And, and, uh, and it just collapsed at the end, he couldn't do it, because everybody pulled their money out. Or, you know, there were, enough stuff went wrong, they couldn't do it. So, so in, 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 uh, you see this with slavery in the American South. You know, it didn't really take off until cotton was booming after the cotton gin, and then they really needed a lot of people. Uh, uh, so so that that's the danger of, of the financial compromise can push people. I mean, it makes you realize what Paul says in First Timothy, that, that money is the source of, what is it, what is it, the source of all evil, not the source of all evil, what is it, the root of all evil. Uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, he doesn't mean love of money is the most basic evil, period, uh, and everything can be reduced to that. But he means, but by the love of money, I love money, you can justify any of it. It can take you to, to committing any evil in that, under that priority. Uh, and and just, it's just brutal. I mean, I mean you can imagine. He, he was in agony and was ended up, ended up really discouraged at the end of his life. What have I done? Uh, because he'd seen so much. And I think that some of the slavery in the islands was even worse than in the, in, in the continental America. I mean, the, the level of, of, uh, of degradation, death of a slave wasn't too bad a thing. Because, I mean, here we, we paid good money for slaves, so we didn't want to throw them away. But there, there were many, and they... Uh, they were cheap. And, uh, oh, it's just brutal. So, I don't know, what would be the equivalent of money that's kept women down? I think it's a kind of social, kind of security, kind of twisted kind of security of, of, from hierarchy. Well, I think it ultimately goes, ultimately goes back to the Genesis 3.16. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that one of the results of the fall was an unrighteous, Rule of men over women, and that was that was right into the fall. So, and the, and it's been documented in every known culture, and by feminists and by other people. Um, so it's really, it's really, base a basic part of the fall, like all the other parts of the fall, but which humans are meant to obviously resist yeah. until it costs them something. Yeah, <coughs> just hearing you talk about you know. Calvin and his freedom and his all this stuff, but then knowing, yeah, and I'm really thankful for Calvin, but <laughs> the blind spots. Oh, not you can't good. be thankful for everything at all. I mean, yeah. there's all sorts of things for you. I mean, he and there's all sorts of church history is muddy, yeah, just right. kind of like it is today, yeah. and uh, hard to just have the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah, anything. Else, can't see here. 
Well, I've kept you going for a long time. Oh, mm-hmm. jo- Joshua. I just, I've, just, uh, I've been reading Romans, the letter of Romans, and I've just been struck with like, 14 and 15, uh, where Paul is like the strong lead to serve the weak. Mm-hmm. You know, it's some sort of division amidst the churches around food and other sort of laws, and he divides them up into weak and strong, and has this ethic of the strong serving the weak. And, um, is that is there a precedent for that sort of approach outside of yeah. like I, I I know he has a particular like he's talking about two groups in a church and he even talks about the strong putting aside their power um, for the sake of those who don't have power um, uh, but I was just curious like that just strikes me as a well, I'm just curious. Did that? Did Paul, how did Paul play into some of this stuff? And Paul does do some pretty apart from you know the Galatians, uh, Galatians three, you know, kind of manifesto for freedom, where he calls people to like act in a certain way. I'm just curious in your reading and in your own thinking, is there a precedent for anyone talking like that prior to Paul? Because um, it, it's somehow connected to like. He's giving a duty to those who have mm-hmm. power. Have more. Like acknowledging something <coughs> in, in in the week. I mean, just in the little bit of reading I did on like slave, like class and slavery in the ancient world, like it didn't. But those who don't have power just don't really. They don't really matter. Yeah. Um, they don't really exist. I, mean, um, I was just was curious in, in some of the stuff you've been reading. Yeah, I don't see I don't see it anywhere. I think it's I think it's very radical, not to Paul, but to Jesus. I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, I think it's, Paul it's, got yeah, the idea. Yeah, I mean, the Stoics. The Stoics have some ideas that are a little bit parallel in terms of equality uh, in in being. But it didn't take them very far in terms of putting something into practice. Um, but here, I think there's something really, really radical. Radical. I, I, and it, I want to say, distinguish it, uh, though. From, <clears throat> I think you probably could find um, putting yourself down, kind of thing, as a kind of an ascetic right. direction. Of suffering is good. You could probably in Neoplatonism find, or mm-hmm. maybe in Plato, a, a virtue in suffering is going to help you. Is but it's going to be good just to suffer, uh, to be in a in a kind of a Greek dualism sort of thing, uh, which which of course has sometimes gotten into uh, to Christian teaching. Uh, so it's an illegitimate way of putting yourself down mm-hmm. somehow right. because it's somehow virtuous. Yeah. I always remember a, a, a film called The Nun's Story with Audrey Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Anyone ever seen that? Mm-hmm. It's an old, I mean, Audrey Hepburn it was quite young. Well, she, she plays a, a young nun who's very bright and uh, capable and studying to be a nurse, being whatever, or I guess to be a nurse. And... She just aced all her biology exams, 
and, and, and her, her mother, superior, told her, you are doing very well academically. To come closer to God and to learn humility, you need to start failing your exams. You need to flunk exams in order to give you, in order to, in order that you would grow spiritually. And she blows her fuses, uh, as you could imagine. She works like hard. She's it to be interested because she's helping, helping people. She eventually leaves. But I, I think there's that dynamic that's, uh, that's afoot. Uh, that I see, yeah, I see it sometimes in people who come come here, you know, and, and, and but that that's an expression of a certain dualistic form of, of Christianity. But that's totally different from Paul, because he's not, he's saying don't do it because it's good; it, it will help you do it because you because you can help somebody. The, the people you're helping with your strength need help, and you can really, you know, it, it's 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 functionally uh, helpful. It's good. Uh, you you do it because it's going to really uh, make things different, and so no big deal that you have. I mean, wh- what is it? You know, in First Corinthians, where he's, where people are suing each other, yeah, yeah. Wh- where, what does he say? Better, be, better to be be fault be, 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 be what is his word? I can't remember. To be wronged, basically. Yeah, and rather than to go to court before non-Christians with other. Take uh, take another Christian to court before a non-Christian yeah. court. Mm-hmm. Uh, better for you to suffer loss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a, I mean, that's a really interesting. It's mm-hmm. the name of God that's 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 being that's to gain there. It's mm-hmm. it's the unity of the body of Christ that's to that's to uh, to gain. It's not just that you'll it'll be better for your spirituality. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it might be, but that's not the main reason. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So, I, anyone think of yeah, Ben? I'm just thinking of uh, not sure how closely related this is, but just the um, the man that comes to Jesus almost to do what he's saying. If he says, "You know the commandments: love your neighbors yourself." The question is, who is my neighbor? Yeah. Um, and that that conversation, and then I believe that's when he tells the story of the of the, um, the Good Samaritan. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this really. Um, fascinating thing where the guy has a sense of obligation to neighbor but it's not everybody you, know, you, have, to, you have to narrow it down to like, who, who, who's, who's really my neighbor like, who, to whom do I really owe yeah. this kind of yeah. uh, care and love and respect who's in my surely, circle of yeah, obligation surely you couldn't meet everybody um, mm. you know let you just be clear Jesus you know yeah. And then Jesus tells the Good Samaritan story, which, which, in many ways, in a very complex way, basically says, it's, it's everybody, including the people you most despise. Right. Um, yeah. And th- that, um, that idea that there's no, there's no hierarchy. We don't get to choose who deserves dignity. Um, the yeah. obligation was on us to. To whoever we, we happen to come into contact yeah. with, um, they're an image of God. And that obligation is yeah. like, you know, um, I find that to be, I mean, that sort of teaching is surely behind Paul's, yeah. <laughs> Paul's theology. Yeah. And, and in all, all probability, yeah. he is, uh, you know, he's seeking to justify himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in all probability, he's someone who would not have 
helped a Samaritan right. <laughs> in trouble right. Right. and have it very well justified. Or, or someone who was unclean even if they were a Jew. Yeah. Right? Or whatever. Yeah. 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 I, I just heard someone this week talking about that passage in Luke and it, it just has this interesting detail of man who was going down was being you know, robbed but his clothes were taken from him mm. and he was, so he's naked and so but clothes in the ancient world were your indication of where you were on the the social status <coughs> if you saw someone on the side and if you did something good for someone they would do something back to you so if he had clothes on and everyone knew he was wealthy anyone and everyone would have stopped mm. and helped him mm. and he stripped <laughs> naked uh, you can't tell. No idea yeah. where yeah. he fits on the, on the hierarchy. Yeah. 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 He could be a yeah. nobody. Yeah. You yeah. never get anything back from. Just have it. Yeah. Your obligations the same. It's quite yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. A heavy medical bill to pay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which is what he has. Yeah. 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 Just one more quick, quick comment connected to that is, is the what came to to mind listening to this lecture was the in Psalm fifty one mm-hmm. when David is crying out to God have mercy on him for what he's done. This is after Nathan has confronted him about murdering Uriah and, and, and taking mm-hmm. Bathsheba. And, and it's always um, been disturbing to me, but it, it makes all the sense in the world. Where he, in verse 4, which says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Mm-hmm. Talking to God. Mm-hmm. And you're just like... What? <laughs> it doesn't... Yeah. <clears throat> there's obviously many people that, that uh, David has sinned against. But this idea that the image of God, it's, it's because of the image of God in all the people that David has wronged, it is a real violation against God. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it, it's, 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 a, it's an affront to God, first and foremost. God's image and all sorts of people. Because of his image in your eye, the Hittite and the Hittite. That's interesting. It's so, so, so powerfully. Yeah. It always... Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah it, it sounds like one more put down for poor Bathsheba. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but, it, but, it, but it isn't really healthy. That's helpful that, yeah. that I never thought of that, that the reference to the image of God. Mm-hmm. Dick, I got a, yeah. a comment and a question. So the comment's from uh, Andrea Mil- Milka. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Well, she just appreciated the comment. Uh, a good society is one in which it's easy to be good. Uh-huh. She says that says a lot for nowadays, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the question comes from Clint, and he's talking about he's asking a question about truth. So he said, uh, "If truth lies in God, um, is God just um, when He says this is true? Is it is He just saying what's true?" Is he just describing what's true? Is he determining what's true? He wants to know, well, especially when it comes to human rights. So is he just, yeah. Um, not sure, yeah. <coughs> I guess he wants, to, yeah, maybe more clarity on how should we see human rights? Is it a, God just describing a reality or is he making that reality? I, I think both. I mean, here, it's the reality that's there is reality that he's made. You know, the, the yeah. creation and the, the law and so on. As he's, um, I thought it was what they call the Euthyphro problem. 
but that's not what he's asking really, uh, which is which is that does God say something's good because he recognizes it to be good from some external source, or is it good because he says so? Yeah, I was wondering if he was asking yeah. that too. Yeah, I don't think that's where... Uh, what would you say about that? That, I think, is both. I, yeah, got, I it's got, it's got, to be, got to be both. Yeah. You're forced to make a, a, a thing, but I, Plato would have bucked, I'm sure, at, at, at that try. But, but uh, yeah, I, I think this is different, but here, here you're dealing with a... Um, a, a fixed reality, a reality that he's made, and he's spoken into it all sorts of values and ways of living to us, and wants us to connect those ways with the living situation we're in. He wants us to connect what we know of who he is, <coughs> um, what is important, what's less important. Uh, and, and uh, do it in an ever-changing world. Uh, I don't think we n- need to get... Um, he doesn't expect us to sort of take every decision to God and get an answer back to, from God, you know, in every decision we have to make. I think we're meant to wrestle with it ourselves and, and uh, with what we know already uh, of, his, of his word, of his... Actions before of his, of all, all the stories that we've come across in the scriptures, and how they've gone. I don't know. That's a. Not sure I can go that good. much more than that. <laughs> Thanks, okay. Any other things? Oh, yeah, Sorry, I can't see your hand. Uh, well, I'm here. Yeah, good. Um. So, I apologize if you went over this earlier in my radar. But I just didn't pick it up. But what would you say to the scientific argument or, you know, the you know, evolutionist argument that, you know, our perception of human dignity and human worth is just like, you know, the next step on the evolutionary chain, you know, like as, you know, human race, that's the next step, like that we're, the next step we're going into, you know, and prolonging this, you know, just surviving is this idea that, we all have dignity, and you know, we all have worth, and that somehow is like the next steps in like ensuring, you know, human survival, like the survival of our species. Yeah, um, it makes an awful lot of um, to get that out of evolutionary psychology, because uh, something to be. For it to drive natural selection, this is within their theory, uh, has got to be a competitive advantage <clears throat> with other members of the species. Uh, and I, I, I see it in, in sort of the other way around. I see the, our need for meaning and purpose and human dignity is the thing that we've evolved to a point where what we need is not here, doesn't exist. How would we possibly have evolved this crippling psychological commitment to meaning purpose? 
needing meaning in life. Uh, it 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 because uh, we would we would have evolved to a point where what satisfies our need is just not here in the world. So we'd be in a sense at the bottom of the evolutionary ladder in terms of fittingness, fitting to the world. Uh, now the trouble is, evolutionary argument, evolutionary argument, they, they it, it's a very. <clears throat> I, I don't know what I think about evolution in the, in the whole the whole picture. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm not sure what uh, I used to think. I used to know what I thought, but I, I didn't, <laughs> that was much anymore. But, but uh, 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 the the um, thing that makes me suspicious of it is, in a sense, the ability that they, especially in evolutionary psychology, to explain anything with outrageous means of explanation, <laughs> you know, and conflicting means of explo- uh, uh, explanation with one another. And, and uh, but this incredible ingenuity in terms of showing why whatever we find here did have a survival advantage, mm-hmm. reproductive advantage. Uh, and... Uh, Oh, it's it's it. So, so I'm I'm sort of suspicious of the whole uh, facility of it because uh, there's nothing that they can't explain. But I think, for example, that hugely important human quest for purpose. It's not just a, that. Just goes as far back as we there's any human history. And what where would that have come from? And how how crippling that is because it's it's so hard. Uh, and and we, if the evolutionist is right as, a, as an atheist, there's, not, there's nothing there to which it corresponds. Uh, you have to say it's got to do with... Uh, I know, I mean, they, we, I've read things about people's view of the evolution of God. It has to do with community development and what mm-hmm. holding community together, what makes the community work is having some focus point and, and so on. But I, I just... That I find very implausible. I also find it implausible. Where in the world did we ever get a notion of beauty, an appreciation of beauty, visual beauty, musical beauty. What What is the... It seems so utterly superfluous and to, to the basic nuts and bolts of biological survival. Um, now, they're talking about psychological survival as well, which, which opens, which gives them a lot more room to move. But still, where does this come from, given how important the enormous weight we put on on beauty on purpose on right and wrong um, I, I just have trouble with it um, as a as a uh, as as a powerful explanation I just don't think it measures up very much and, and then the other thing is that <clears throat> um, Can you live without it yourself? I mean, it's one thing to say this just developed historically because in the late hunter-gatherer society, da, 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 something happened. But now I know better. Now I know there's no reason for it. I can leave it behind. But uh, we can't leave this stuff behind. None of it we can leave behind, even though we have it reduced to something very, very much just a question of genetics. 
you know, the selfish gene was more powerful than other selfish genes and, and got me to a place that I don't understand. Uh, I don't know. I, that's, uh, and, and, and again, that's someone like that. What, what's the shape of their whole life? Again, I don't like to just argue on, on evolution, which I'm very uninformed about. But, but uh, where, where, where is one's whole life? And where does purpose fit? In in, uh, in their whole lives, I don't know. That's any anyone else have a crack at that? Because that's a yeah. I just wonder. Yeah, it seems like the typical argument goes: if I can show you why there's a a reason it helps them survive, it precludes any other um, reason for it. So for some reason, that precludes any creative purpose by a creator and. I'm just not sure why that's the case. That's, that's the assumption at work a lot of the time. So I would want to challenge that assumption. Like, just because something helped us survive doesn't mean it couldn't be given to us by a creator or have a bigger purpose. Who is interested? Who is interested in our survival? Yeah. And 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 more. <clears throat> yeah. 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 It's hard. <clears throat> I, I I find it hard because the. The, the commitment to macroevolution is so unbelievably dug in. And uh, I was a guy who was a chemi- chemistry PhD here years ago, and he'd argued against macroevolution and said that <clears throat> he d- what he described was the Swiss cheese effect, where that... that uh, <clears throat> Many evolutionists, it's as if they were living in a huge piece of Swiss cheese with a hole with holes in it, you know. And they were living in one hole. And when you look diagonally flat across the, the surface of Swiss cheese, you don't see the other holes. You see only the hole you're in. And they see they see the hole in their in their discipline. But they look abroad and they see nobody else has holes. Everybody else, is, you know, the, the, there are no holes, so evolutionary theory is fine. But he says, actually, everybody, when they're educated in their own field, there's all sorts of difficulties we have. And, and uh, so he was, he was uh, long on trying to uh, debunk the self-confidence. But there's just a huge commitment to it that that's, I think a lot of people can't make sense of biology without it. And I don't know enough about any part of it to really uh, make a, make that well, much sense. Wasn't that one of Tim's non-Christian professors who said that? Well, we we heard that from well, I think his name is Steve Young. Oh, yeah. from the Center for Northern Studies. True. He was not a Christian yeah. at all, and he was a biologist. But he gave that illustration. He gave a lecture at Tim's suggestion yeah. of reasons against Darwin. Yeah, even and, though he was a non-Christian yeah. professor from Middlebury College. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting really guy. guy. Yeah, but, but, but a, it's sort of a little bit of a maverick. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but that was like, why he's able to do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah a, a total maverick, not 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 eating to sort of so dance to anybody's tune or anything, yeah, <laughs> including the environment and uh, all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, how are we doing? Any other things we'd like to? 
why don't we call it a night? And uh, we can go out and observe human rights. Thank you.